Cause you had a bad day You had a bad day So we've been in this series uh, for a couple weeks, going through the book of Job. And as we've been going through the book of Job, we've been learning a couple interesting things. Now, the first thing is a lot of people get the wrong idea of the book of Job. They only read the first couple of uh, chapters, the first two chapters, and then the last chapter or two, and they get this general impression that the story of Job goes like this. Job was a good guy, Satan got involved, bad things happened to Job, Job goes on a long talk with his friends, and I don't want to read that part because it's all poetic, and uh, uh, let's just skip to the end, and so then people get to the end, and at the end we find out that there's a happy ending, there's a good ending at the end, and so then people get this general idea about the book of Job, that Job is a good guy who goes through hard times, but he stays faithful, and at the end God makes everything better. There's only a problem with that. Well, there's a lot of problems with that, but one of the key problems with it is that it's wrong. It's exactly the wrong lesson from the book of Job. Because you guys have been with us for the past couple of weeks. You know that we've looked at all that stuff in the middle, and all that stuff in the middle has made Job look like a really not-so-good guy. Like, he was blameless. God tells us at the very beginning of the book that he was blameless. But the whole time in the middle of the book, Job is blaming God for his hardship. And so by the time we finish where we finished last week, we have heard three points of view about who God is. And the first point of view about who God is, especially in relationship to our hardship, our pain, and our suffering, the first point of view comes from Job's friends. And Job's friends tell him that God is a transactional God. There are no blanks for this, but we're just going to put these things up on the screen so you can kind of follow along. Uh, God is a transactional God, is what his friends have said. That means God looks at you, and if he likes you, he does nice things for you. And if he doesn't like you, he doesn't do nice things for you. And so if you scratch his back, he'll scratch your back. If you do good things, he'll do good things. And so God is a this for that, tit for tat, quid pro quo kind of God. That's the theory of the three friends of Job problem is they keep telling Job the reason you're facing hardship and suffering is that God somehow found something wrong with you. So confess whatever it is and then God will bless you again. And Job is like, it's not that simple. Listen, buddies, God is not fair. That's what Job is saying. Job says, God is not fair, but I'm trusting that one of these days he can make things right. The Bible word for that is redeem. So Job's point of view is God isn't fair, but he will redeem. The friends are like God is a transactional God. Job is God isn't fair, but he will redeem. And then last week we came across a third guy. And the third guy is Elihu. And Elihu comes up with a new perspective where he basically says everyone else is wrong. Elihu says, Job, you're wrong. Friends, you're wrong. And Elihu says this. He says, God is holy and he's also near. And God is righteous, and he's also merciful. And everything you need to know about God is contained in these things. God is holy, he's above you, but he's near. He's trying to speak to you. And God is righteous, and he's going to judge the world, but he's merciful, and he's not doing it yet. And so this is what Elihu says. And then we went through sort of an uh, exercise last week trying to figure out, is Elihu a good guy or a bad guy? Because God, at the end of the book, says Job's three friends are wrong. Job is right, but he doesn't say anything about Elihu. So we concluded that Elihu must have told us something right. In fact, one of the things that Elihu says is the only response you can have to a God like this, 
is to worship him. And today, you're going to see that that's about the only thing that Job actually does. In other words, Job takes Elihu's advice. So we should take Elihu's advice. Now, there's two lingering problems. There are two lingering problems to this whole thing that we've covered so far, because I made a promise to you at the beginning of this journey that as we went through the book of Job, we would find a satisfying answer to the problem of pain and suffering. A satisfying one. And last week, we got to this place where Elihu is like, God's completely in charge, and you just got to deal with it. And someone came up to me after our worship gathering, and they asked me a question, and it reminded me that there are two problems in the book of Job that we haven't fully addressed yet. And we will get an answer for them today, but before we get that answer, I want to give you a couple smaller answers first. Things that we've already seen in the book of Job, but things that are important for us to remember. Two problems in the book of Job. One, there's a lingering question, and the question is, how can God be so good if, fill in the blank, How can God be so good if this thing has happened? I'm going to give you four answers. Again, no blanks for you to fill out, but you might want to keep these as notes. There are four things that we can say, four answers to this question. How can God be so good if blank has happened? Option number one, a bad thing in my life can prevent a worse thing later. Any one of you who's a parent knows this to be true. Your child is reaching for a thing. The flame is on on the stove. They're reaching for the stove. The glass has just come out of the oven. They're reaching for the glass. And you, in response to them reaching for the thing, smack their hand away. And it's in that moment you as a parent know I am willing to make them feel pain because I don't want them to be hurt. There's a difference. And so the thing that I perceive in my life that is bad could just be a loving father keeping me away from something worse. That's option number one. Option number two, if God is so good, why has this thing happened? Option number two is that the bad thing in my life can actually lead to a great thing later. I know you've all experienced this, uh, but one of the reasons, one of the ways we all experience this is just in crazy hard work. Uh, sometimes I'm going to do hard work. It doesn't feel good. It feels bad. But that hard work, whether it's an athletic achievement, whether it's academic achievement, whatever it is, that hard work is going to lead me to another place that is a great place. And so I'm going to experience the quote unquote bad because it's leading me to something great. There's a third reason. The bad thing that's in my life can also lead to a good thing for someone else. This is where it gets hard for us. Because see, I'm willing to put up with a lot of frustration and pain in my life as long as I reap the benefit, right? But if I'm putting up with pain and hardship in my life so that someone else can reap the benefit, I'm not so comfortable with that. I don't know if I like that. But as a matter of fact, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus himself is the one who went through pain and hardship and suffering. He died on a cross so that you could live, so that I could live and have a relationship with my Heavenly Father. Sometimes a bad thing in my life is going to lead to a good thing for someone else. And then the fourth reason is this. Sometimes the bad thing is a blessing in disguise. Not that it leads to a blessing, but that it is itself a blessing. 
It's because I had a perspective on a thing and I thought the thing was bad. And then someone comes up to me and they tell me that one thing that shifts my perspective. And now all of a sudden I realize that was a good thing. That was a good thing. I was talking to someone who had a problem with their, with their job. They were telling me that they had an issue with their job and they were kind of frustrated with their job. And it was because they had recently received a new set of responsibilities and they were kind of struggling with it. And a friend of theirs had told them, hey, listen, hang on a second. Are you telling me you got a promotion? The guy says, yes. He says, you're getting more money? The guy says, yes. The friend says, I don't feel sorry for you. (laughs) And it was like all of a sudden perspective change. Oh, so you mean this is a blessing from God? At least in one particular way, it's a blessing. Sometimes the bad thing in our lives is actually a blessing in disguise. Now, I've given you four reasons, and you probably already knew them. You probably could already think of them yourselves. And so I'm going to give you a, a fifth thing, and this is a rule. Because, see, the truth of the matter is a lot of times what we do when it comes to suffering is that we're not talking about our own suffering. We're asking the question, God, how can you be good and you let that thing happen to that person? So I'm going to give you a rule, okay? I don't have the right to borrow someone else's suffering for my opinion. I don't have the right to borrow someone else's suffering to form my own conclusions, to establish my own convictions, to set up my own opinions. You can, you can base some of your opinions on your own experience of the world, sure, but you can't borrow someone else's suffering. I, I hear people all the time will say something like this, I just can't believe in a God. You know, they're sitting in their comfortable American uh, United States experience and they'll say, I just can't believe in a God who would allow that kind of suffering to happen in that foreign country that they're thinking of. And they'll say, oh, look at all that atrocity that's happening over there. I can't believe in a God who would allow that to happen. And I want to look at him straight in the eye and say, well, I can't believe in you. Who's allowing that to happen? And they say, no, no, I can't believe in a God who would allow that to happen. No, the better answer is how about let's fly over there. How about let's talk to the people who are actually experiencing the suffering. And let's ask them if they're atheists. Because my experience of the world is that people who are encountering suffering tend to be the people of greatest faith, tend to be the people who are actually saying, no, 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 God's meeting me here. Don't don't take away, don't take away my God from me. I need him in this suffering. Don't borrow someone else's suffering for your opinion. So there's, there's sort of an understanding of framework of the first problem that still lingers from the book of Job. There's a second problem though. The second problem of the book of Job I already referenced is that it ends with a happy ending. Now that's a problem. Let me, let me read it to you. The happy ending shows up in chapter 42. We're going to do that first. Chapter 42, verse 7 says this. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you. And I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So God says to these friends, you're wrong, Job's right. Job got some vindication. Yeah. Don't you just feel great when someone else says to the person that you want to say, I told you so, someone else says it to them first and then says, Jesse told you so, or, or Jeff told you so, or someone else. I don't know who's going to tell you so, but I feel great when someone else is like, he was right. I love that. God does that. After Job prayed for his friends, verse 10, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. 
All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble. Watch it. The Lord had brought on him. Once again, listen, you can't miss this. You cannot blame Satan. You cannot blame circumstances. You cannot blame anyone else for the hardship that Job went through. Time and time again, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, God takes responsibility for the hardship of Job over and over again. And now at the end of the book, it is reconfirmed all over again that God had brought the trouble. And each one of his family gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, that's twice as much as before, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys, and he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuch. I don't know why she gets two names. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. And you finish the story, and you're like, oh, it's so great that everything worked out for Job. I want to remind you something. He's got seven dead kids. Um, it's too easy for us to look at the story and fall into the easy narrative. Job was good. Some bad things happened. Job stayed good. And God blessed him all again. But there's this really important part. Throughout that last little section there, Even though God rewards Job, even though God blesses Job all over again, it is not given to us as a promise of that's the way God works. It is given to us as an example of what he once did for someone. Our trouble is when we begin to take a look at the end of the story and make predictions about how it's supposed to work out with us because then we begin to get the conclusion that God blesses good people and he doesn't bless bad people and then you are in exactly the same position as Job's three friends who said God was a transactional God and who heard God say they're wrong. So if you only read the beginning and the end of Job, you're going to get the exact opposite opinion for what it should be. And that's why we're not ending with this epilogue. We're ending with what happens when God talks. But there's a tiny little thing that I want to just highlight your attention towards. In this last little epilogue that we just looked at, God says to Job, your friends are wrong, and I'm going to forgive them. You see, right there in that moment that whole theory that God is transactional goes out the window. Because God says, no, 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 no. Your friends are wrong. And I'm going to forgive them. You see, here's the point. Of the entire book, it's a subtext. But here at the end, it's one of the main points. Here it is. God doesn't treat you the way you deserve. He doesn't. God does not treat you the way you deserve. I know how grateful I am for that. Sometimes I think I deserve better, but I'm so grateful that God never treats me how I actually deserve because I know what I've done. I know what's going on in my heart. So now we're going to go backwards. 
because we're about to hit the absolute most important part of the book of Job. It's the part where God shows up, where God talks, and everybody else keeps their mouth shut. Chapter 38, I want to take you there. It says this, verse 1 of chapter 38, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. I don't know if you remember chapter 37, but in chapter 37, what God had been, uh, what Elihu had been saying to the people around him, to Job's friends and Job himself, Elihu had been talking about the glory of God. He says, look up at the skies. Can you make it rain? Can you make the lightning happen? And he begins to describe a storm coming in from the, uh, from the distance. And he says, way over on the horizon, that storm is coming in. And Elihu is talking about the storm. And you You thought it was a metaphor, but by the time you reach chapter 38, verse 1, we realize it's not a metaphor. We realize Elihu was describing an actual storm. Now, you've seen one. You live in Indiana. You know what it's like, and so you know what it's like to be in your house or just outside, and you look up, and the sky is blue, and the clouds are nice, white, and puffy, and you're just like, oh, it's so beautiful here in Indiana, and then you look over onto the horizon, and you see this nasty conglomeration of black just heading straight towards you, and you can see the rain coming down. There's swirls going going. You're worried about maybe a tornado. The sirens are going off in some parts of the city. And you're just like, oh my goodness, it's heading towards me. The lightning is flashing. The rain now, you look at it closer and it's all going sideways. And it's not at your house yet, but it's on its way. You need to picture that right here. Because Elihu in all of chapter 37 was using this kind of descriptive language to talk about the coming storm. And then in chapter 38, we find out that God speaks to Job from the storm you got to picture that cloud that's coming towards you. It's heading right over your head. It is now here, and then it talks. You better believe whatever conversation you were having with your friends at that moment in time is done. It's now no longer the time to talk. It is the time to listen. God speaks to Job out of the storm. I'm going to read everything he says. Who is this? that obscures my plans with words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Man, I like it when God gets mad. I just, you know, I picture him, you know, just kind of that, that cloud, thunder, booming, lightning thing, storm, wind, whooshing around, tornado, train kind of coming through. Who is this? You know, I'm just like, man, that needs to be made into a movie. You know, at least just the one scene. It'd be millions of dollars. But I would watch it. And so he shows up and he says, who is this? Now, God, of course, knows. He's talking to Job. But check it out. He says, who is this who darkens my plans, who obscures my plans with words without knowledge? God, in a few minutes, is going to say that Job was right and the friends were wrong. But right now, what he says is, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. And there's this little word, the first phrase that comes out of God's mouth. Who is this who obscures my plan? You see, up until this point, 
Job was of the mindset that God was just not paying attention. God was allowing a bad thing to happen. And Job was like, God, I'm trying to get your attention. Would you just show up? Because I'm innocent. I don't deserve this stuff. He would just show up. I could prove to you I'm innocent. And if you would pay attention, you would know that I'm innocent. And then you would cleanse me of all these problems that I'm, all these problems that I'm having. Or God is paying attention and God is being mean. And he's like, God, would you stop accusing me? Stop accusing me of these bad things. I don't deserve any of this stuff. Maybe I need a mediator to come and talk to you on my behalf, but it's not, you should just leave me alone. In both of these cases, Job is like, God is either inattentive or he is mean. He's doing something he shouldn't be doing. And yet, guess what? God shows up and he says, who is this who obscures my plan? Who is getting in the way of my plan? Who is darkening my plan? Who is talking without knowing what they're talking about, about my plan? Write this down. God has a plan. And we can't know it. Listen, I could just stop right there, but there's a whole lot of other good stuff. So let's keep going, okay? So God says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Look at that, look at that. God says, God says, did you measure everything like I did? How many of you have made anything with wood? Like, you know, cutting, yeah, stuff like that. You know the rule about wood, right? You, You measure once, you cut twice. Right there, there are two ways. There are two ways to do woodworking. You either measure once, and then you cut, and then you have to do it again because you did it wrong, or you measure twice, and then you only have to cut once. Because measuring is so important, you have to get your plan squared away. You got to get your details squared away. God says, "Hang on a second. Do you think I just put the world together haphazardly? Do you think I just set everything up accidentally? Do you think I just walked into the room one day and said, you know what? I think I'd like an earth. How about, let's just make it round. That'll be easy. There. No, God says, I measured it. I measured everything about it. I planned it. I had details. I had blueprints. It was all strategized, and I did it the way I wanted to do it. God has a plan. You don't know it, but God has a plan. Now let's go ahead. Verse 8 is our next section. Now he says, Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning Or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. God says to Job, listen, have you ever given any orders to the morning? Have you ever given any orders to the ocean? Have you told the waves they can go this far but no farther? Have you told them that? Because guess what, Job? I did. God says he orders the universe. We don't. That means order in two different senses. 
In the first sense, it says God orders the universe, which means he puts everything in order. But secondly, it means God orders the universe in the sense that he tells it what to do. He's like, I order the whole universe, Job. You don't. Keep going. Verse 16. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You've lived so many years. God says to Job, listen, if you were an Uber, could you get light home? Could you help darkness make it home? Could you be a taxi driver that gets these places to where they're supposed to go? <laughs> no, you don't. Because guess what, Job? I see everything and you don't. God sees everything. He knows it all. He sees it all. And we don't. Verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? Pause real quick. Did you see that? God just says, I've got a storehouse of hail that I'm waiting for a bad day. I've got some hail ready to go. And I'm waiting for the day when I can dump it. On that bad day, on that day of trouble, on that day of war, on that day of battle, I'm going to dump the hail. Because God has some hail ready for a bad day. But keep going. He says, For what is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed, or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain, and a path for the thunderstorm, to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Did you see that? Yeah. He said, I've got some rain set aside for a land that no one has even been to. And I'm going to satisfy this land with this special rain. Did, did you see that? God has some weather. And he's going to use some of it for a bad day. And he's going to use some of it for a good day. Keep going. He says, does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? When the waters become hard as stone? When the surface of the deep is frozen? He says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? That's a constellation in the sky that just looks like a bunch of stars kind of in a clump. He says, can you loosen Orion's belt? Yeah, you've seen Orion. You know what that looks like. Can you bring forth the constellations in their season or lead out the bear with its cubs? That's a reference to the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? See what God says to Job. He says, listen, listen. I'm in charge of all this stuff. I'm so in charge of this stuff, I can use some of this stuff for disaster and I can use some of this stuff for blessing. God rules nature. He rules nature with and for both disaster and blessing. It's not that God is just always going to do the nice things. There are some things that God does to bring disaster. 
Human beings are fighting a battle. God's like, we're going to end that thing. We're going to send down some hail. There's a land. No one farms it. No one knows about it. No one's ever been there. But God's like, you know what? I want some grass there. And he'll put some rain there. Keep going. Now we're in verse 36. Who gives the ibis wisdom? Okay, now I'm going to read a long section here. And this long section has a whole bunch of animals. So if you like the zoo, pretend you're there. If you, if you like animals, pretend, you, pretend we're just Discovery Channel for a moment, okay? Or Animal Planet or something. So there's going to be a whole bunch of animals here, which I think is just fascinating science, by the way, because this is like thousands of years old, and they're talking about animals that I didn't know were in Israel, like an ostrich. Yeah, we're going to read about an ostrich. I'm like, how'd that get in the Bible? But it's there. Anyway, so uh, we're going to read about a whole bunch of animals. And here's the main point. I'll give you a little bit of the point to begin with. Pay attention to the fact that the animals do what they're supposed to do. And they do something that's good. Did you teach them that? Verse 36. Who gives the ibis wisdom or gives the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch them when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? So just so you know, it's not who let the dogs out. The biblical one, who let the wild donkey go free? Just, you know, to throw that out there. Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear the driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it in the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? In other words, no, it's a wild ox. Don't trust it with anything. And verse 13, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand. Unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may tramp them, she treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet, when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Speaking of horses, do you give the horse its strength? Or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength, and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side, along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, it eats up the ground. It cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, it snorts. Aha! It catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom 
and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From there it looks for food. Its eyes detect it from afar. Its young ones feast on blood. And where the slain are, there it is. Here's the point. God says, have you seen the world? It works. I did that. God says, he's the one who put wisdom in the world. God put wisdom in the world. You didn't. So, so far, I mean, we've learned some interesting things. God has a plan. I can't know it. God orders the universe. I don't. God sees everything. I don't. God rules for disaster and blessing. I I don't rule anything. God put wisdom in the world. I didn't. And so verse 1 of chapter 40, then the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. This is the same thing Job said. Job said earlier, God, let my accuser come forth. God says, Job, let my accuser come forth. And Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I will have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. God, (laughs) I don't have anything to say. So then God starts talking again. Here it is, verse 6. Then the Lord spoke to Job, and so you don't forget, it's out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Man, I'm just picturing the storm. I'm I'm picturing the thunder. I'm picturing the lightning, and I'm picturing God doing his absolute best James Earl Jones, Darth Vader situation where he's like in the thunder, and he's like, Job! Can your voice do this? My voice can't. But whatever it was that he did, man, I want to say I want to hear that, but no, I don't. I think it would have like freaked me out. So he says, can your voice thunder like his? Then, if it can, adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are humble, who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Job, you've been complaining to me about not dealing with the wicked people in this world. You say, God, you let the wicked people go. You haven't dealt with them. Okay, Job, fine. I'm stepping back. Go ahead. Take it. I just love it when God like taunts people because you know they are going to not win. And so you better just not even try. And so God is like, okay, Job, you want to deal with it? Go ahead. And Job, of course, doesn't have anything to say because of course the point is If God doesn't judge the people, then no one else can judge the people. God is the only judge. God is judge. And I'm sorry to say, you're not. 
So now we come to the last section of what God says. Again, it's kind of long, so follow along, but God is going to talk about two animals, the behemoth and the leviathan. I told you a couple weeks ago that we don't know what these animals are. The behemoth is the Hebrew word for beast. That's all it means. Leviathan is a word that is both a mythological, like sea serpent from ancient mythology, long before the days of Job. And so maybe God is making reference to that. Some people say that behemoth and leviathan are dinosaurs that were living on earth at the time that Job would have known about. But then again, God also talks about the ostrich. And I don't think Job would have known about the ostrich. So I think that's really interesting. Maybe God is talking about animals that Job hasn't seen, but it would make more sense if he's talking about animals that Job has seen uh, in order to make his point. So some people think it's a crocodile for Leviathan and a hippopotamus for the behemoth, but here's the point. The point is actually pretty clear. As I read through it, you're going to get some pretty dramatic descriptions of these animals, but the point, the point is clear. God is saying to Job, are you in charge of them or is it not you? who's in charge of them. So here we go. We're going to read it. And the main idea is who's in charge of these animals. He says, verse 15, look at the behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God. Yet its maker can approach it with his sword. The hills bring it their produce and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround it. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure, though the Jordan should surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? In other words, no, no one can. Keep going. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make it a pet like a bird or or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength, and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They're joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. Strength resides in its neck. Dismay goes before it. The folds of its flesh are tightly joined. They're firm and immovable. Its chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They 
retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron treat it treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Sling stones are like chaff to it. A club seems to it but a piece of straw. It laughs at the rattling of the lance. Its undersides are jagged pot shards leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. It makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king. Job over all that are proud. And so God is just trying to say to Job, listen, I've got animals who can't even talk and they're more powerful than you. I've got mindless creatures that are more powerful than you. Job, you can't even manage the behemoth or the Leviathan. Why are you thinking you can come against me? And so we end chapter 42, the first six verses. Then Job replies to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, that's the real the real end of this situation. God shows up. He challenges Job with all this stuff. And Job says, okay, God, I'll admit it. I'm ignorant. And so I repent. Now, I told you there would be a satisfying end to this. I told you that this was the book that deals with human suffering in the only way that's truly satisfying. And here we come to the, to the real end of the book, you know, before we hit that epilogue, which kind of makes everything feel like it's happy ending all over again. But the, you, you pay attention to Job's answer. Job doesn't end this encounter with, oh God, I finally realize all that you were trying to do in my life and I'm so grateful for it. You don't have Job have any of this sort of epiphany that we want him to have. We want him to have this this sense of, oh, I get it now. Oh, I understand it now. Oh, it makes perfect sense to me now. Oh, yes, God, I, I get it now. But no, the end with Job is, oh, God, that's who you are. I'm sorry. So how is this going to be satisfying? Well, the thing is that this thing satisfies, not the way that a good meal satisfies. You know what I mean when you have that really fancy steak and immediately when you're done with it, you're full, but you really wish you could start over again? You know, and you're wondering about the next time you can make it back to that restaurant, the next time you can save up enough money to go there, the next time you can order that thing. That's the kind of satisfaction that we pretend to want. 
where I, I just want the thing that makes me feel really good, and then I want the thing that makes me feel really good to happen all the time. But see, God wants to give you a kind of satisfaction that's completely different. God wants to give you a kind of satisfaction that lasts. You know, I'm sorry to say it's not steak, it's more like oatmeal. You know, you eat a, you eat a breakfast of oatmeal and it didn't taste all that great, but you're not hungry for a couple of hours. <laughs> God wants to give you something that's going to last you your whole life long, no matter what kind of hardship you face, no matter what kind of difficulty you face. And this is it. What we have just read. Let me pull it together for you. Four statements. God is supremely powerful, wise, and good. Number two. And he knows what he's doing. Number three, and I don't. And number four, and that's enough. God is supremely wise, powerful, and good. And he knows what he's doing. And I don't. And that's enough. That's the kind of answer that I believe is truly satisfying. Because that's the one that's true. That's the one that lasts. And one more thing. I don't have time to read the passage for you, but I put it on the note sheet and in the live event. Luke chapter 24. You see, there's an epilogue to the book of Job. Not the one that's in the book of Job. Not chapter 42. But there's an epilogue that shows up a few hundred years later. A few hundred years later, there are two guys walking along a road, facing doubt and discouragement. They've had some hardship. They've had some difficulties in their life. And they're walking along the road, and a stranger comes up to them. And he says, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The stranger goes to their house. They have a meal. And while they're at the meal, the stranger breaks bread and he gives it to them and then all of a sudden their eyes are opened and they recognized him it's Jesus he disappears and they're left there lingering and they say wait a minute what just happened here we recognize it was Jesus how come we didn't recognize him when we were on the road we were too busy thinking about ourselves we were too busy worrying about ourselves we were too busy focusing on ourselves our own hardships our own pains our own frustrations we were too busy thinking about that stuff because we had hoped <laughs> he was right there with us so they get up and they run and they return to Jerusalem and they find the eleven and those with them and they say, it's true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon and the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized them when he broke the bread. Here's the deal. God is supremely powerful and wise and good and he has a plan. On Friday when Jesus dies, he had a plan. 
On Saturday when everyone's sad, he had a plan. On Sunday when everybody's walking home, he had a plan. And Jesus shows up and says, did you not know I had a plan? And they go home. And they're like, did you know? And they're like, we saw him too. God is supremely wise and powerful and good. And he has a plan. And I don't know. And that's enough. I want to ask you to spend just a few moments in reflection on these thoughts because we've got a final song we're going to sing a a little bit of. We're going to have our prayer team up front if there's something that's weighing on your heart that you want to just lift off your heart and give back to God. But I just want to affirm one last thing to you. The, The God who spins the galaxies, who presses down the stars, who shapes the planets and puts them in their place and who causes the clouds to roll in and the thunder and the lightning to crash and the winds to blow hard and the, who made the animals to do exactly what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it. And the God who can raise the dead and who loves you is a God you can trust. That might not be the comfort you're looking for, but it will satisfy. Let me invite you to pray with you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, Check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.